I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. From AccuWeather.com, this is Everything Under the Sun. It's our weekly podcast featuring in-depth interviews with experts from AccuWeather and from around the world. Bringing you behind-the-scenes information, stories, and news on the weather, climate change, and the outdoors. Covering topics from the worlds of science, sports, and space. It's all the information you need to weatherproof your life. And now, here's the host of Everything Under the Sun, AccuWeather meteorologist, Dean DeVore. Friends, welcome in. We've reached the half point of meteorological spring, the halfway point of April. We've certainly been trying to get some warmer temperatures into the northeast and the Great Lakes. We had some success this past week, but another shot of really cold air and unseasonably chilly air. So we head into this Easter weekend, Great Lakes and northeast. Meanwhile, the warmth out west is going to continue and the dry weather in the southwest continues. Our meteorologist Dan Pidnowski will be joining me at the end of the podcast with our weather for the upcoming weekend and week beyond and we'll talk about all those things and we're also going to talk about feeding and migrating birds and how you can follow this massive bird migration that's about to get underway. How that relates to the weather. Some interesting stuff here with our friends at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Friends, sit back and relax. It's time to talk about everything under the sun from AccuWeather.com. As we get underway with episode seven of our spring series, if you may remember, we got back to our winter series and the podcast that dropped back on January 28th was our first conversation with senior research associate, Dr. Andrew Farnsworth of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. And got really excited about weather and bird migration. Had a lot of questions for Andrew then. And friends, we're getting really now on the cusp of an explosion of migration. Some of the most uh, prolific times of bird migration from Central and South. Southern America, South America up towards us, Central America and Mexico and those areas up through the United States and even into Canada. And this is a time when you should be checking out the Cornell Lab of Ornithology's amazing tool, which is called BirdCast. And you can get that by going to birdcast.info. In fact, as you're listening to the podcast, if you're able, you might want to pull that up on your screen a while. But if not, we'll tell you how to navigate that and all the amazing information that that will give us. And also, I think, uh, you know, I found out so many more, and we call them teleconnections in, in meteorology about how if things are happening in one place, something else will happen in another place. I think we're seeing some connections about bird migration, how the weather can cause it or in influence or vice versa, we can tell things about the weather from the migration of the birds. So let's join in with Dr. Andrew Farnsworth here on Everything Under the Sun from AccuWeather.com. Andrew, welcome back in. As I was uh, telling you when we were setting up the interview, I had a lot of great reaction to our visit last time. I think, um, you know, it's amazing to me how meteorologists and uh, bird watching or bird enthusiasm seem to go hand in hand. I, I think it's because you know, there's such a direct corollary, especially when we're talking about seasonal changes in weather and kind of give us a little bit of clue of what's happening, too, by seeing what's happening with the birds. So 
um, from the meteorological friends that I have have enjoyed it and other friends too. So I really, uh, I, I hope we can do this more and more often because I told you before how much I love the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. It's uh, it's a great resource. So welcome back to Everything Under the Sun and uh, some exciting times here as we get into the heart of the season of migration. For us in the Northern Hemisphere, we're seeing some things go away, some things coming in and a lot of transients here this time of year, my friend. Yes, absolutely. This is uh, this is one of the most uh, exciting times. Um, maybe maybe some of it is colored by the fact that you know we've we've all been through the northern winter for the most part, and uh, in particular in more northern latitudes, that usually means uh, not so many birds and low diversity. And now this month, April in particular, is where that really where and when that really starts to change. So this is an exciting time of the year. Obviously, from a meteorological perspective, there's a lot happening. And that's uh, certainly part of the reason that migration is occurring as well, just sort of thinking about the, the connection between those two things. But it's a very exciting time of the year, absolutely. And we're, we're really... Um, we're really probably about uh, 10 to 10 to 12 or 14 days away from kind of the first peak wave of bird migration, you know, entering the U.S. And that'll happen in the southern U.S. and gradually, you know, move move north, much the same way as as uh, greening of vegetation or sort of the warming of temperatures. If you look at a, a map like that, there's this wave of, of, of peak migration. And really, the beginning of that is going to be uh, eh, really sort of like in the 20s of April is when it's going to enter the, the southern part of the U.S. So now soon. Does that, does that change from year to year or is that pretty consistent to the day, just like the day the San Juan, the Capistranos come back to San Juan, right? <laughs> the Cliff Swallows, yeah. The, um, so it, 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 there is some consistency to it um, from some perspectives, and there also is change that's happening. So let me, let me explain a little bit. So the consistent part, so I mentioned that the wave really enters the, the, um, the southern U.S. These are birds that are coming from uh, South America, Central America, the Caribbean, Mexico, where they've spent the northern hemisphere uh, winter. Basically, they move there to, to avoid uh, loss of food, cold weather, etc. And they spend their you know time in much warmer, better climates. And they're there for a lot of the year. And then in the spring, they're moving north. So that wave of migrants, that's the one that's coming in in sort of like the, the third week in April. That's when that peak is first arriving. That timing tends to be very similar over the course of across years. We've looked at that and, and there generally is some consistency there. But as you get farther and farther north, the pattern over the last uh, 20 years or so is that that peak is actually occurring earlier and earlier. So birds are to some extent speeding up once they get into the U.S. to, to try to, to, to sort of track uh, temperature. You know, basically temperature is one one of these things that really defines spring migration in terms of increasing temperature generally means increasing migration intensity. So there's this relationship between warming temperatures and tracking of uh, migration. And of course, as those temperatures have warmed, say over the last 20 years, we see increasingly earlier arrivals of that peak wave. So yes, it does stay the same in some places. No, it changes pretty dramatically in others uh, to the tune of like one to two days per decade even so kind of extrapolate so that's significant so that's that's kind of like if you take the the sort of the northern border uh right the the border with the u.s and canada that's in the zone where 
that change of peak migration is occurring in that one to two days earlier per decade as a function of increasing temperatures. It also means uh, that species will stay longer farther north um, as we're seeing some birds winter more farther north than they were. And that's probably a line that's creeping farther north every year as we go. There are some really interesting patterns like that. Absolutely. That um, depending on the, the species groups, right? For some species, we see them still leaving at the same times. For others, for example, uh, turkey vulture is a great one, but a number of other sparrows, obviously a lot of waterfowl. If the temperatures are warmer and there is food available and they have the capability to migrate in what we call a facultative way, basically as is needed, right? And if they don't need right. to, they don't, right? And that propagates, that kind of change can propagate very quickly in a community uh, when it comes to the change from being a, you know, uh, really an intense migrant, uh, an obligate migrant, as we say, that, that where the, the whole population may move, uh, changing very quickly to a more sedentary or resident population or one that at least only moves when it has to. Those kinds of changes can happen fairly quickly if you have the raw materials within those species and populations, like the numbers of birds and the variation captured in, right. in a population of species to accommodate that. It's not the case with every species and, and it's, uh, you know, not, not every bird can adapt that way. So let me go back to the turkey vultures because I live on a ridge line. Okay. So I look back and, and I'm, in fact, there's a couple of, uh, places where people can go and do the gliding because it's a, it's a good spot. So we get, um, but I'm seeing you're right. Not as much necessarily seasonal migration, but more movement in groups and with vultures, they don't actually fly close together, but you stand there and one goes over and about a minute or two later, another one. And then, and that could go five, six, you know, seven or eight vultures. Um, so you're saying that that is one species that we've seen this less, I, when I was a kid, my dad took me to Hawk Mountain. Do you know? Oh, yeah. I've ever heard about that in oh, southeastern Pennsylvania. Yeah, oh, yes. beautiful. You know, and you know the cry of TV over six, and that meant <laughs> that there was there was bumps in the ridge, and they had them numbered. And if oh, yeah. there was a vulture, so there would be a person there with binoculars and and calling out the birds as they migrated, what they were: osprey, eagles, hawks, red tail, and that kind of stuff. Really yep. cool stuff. So, but I'm seeing that you know those kind of more. Uh, just as needed migrations and movements for depending on food, snow cover, but less big movement, right? Is that what you're saying with the vultures? Yeah, and turkey vultures is an interesting one because it it varies all over the. It obviously it's a it's a widespread species in North America, and some of the birds that are involved as migrants are going all the way to the Amazon from parts you know far north in in uh, on the continent, while some are sticking around. So, for example, in Northeast U.S., the notion of warmer winters um, and also changing. Uh, habitats, if you will, um, increases in the deer population, changing kinds of, of, of habitat that's supporting deer, more roadkill of deer, more availability of, you know, of scavenging uh, foods that these vultures can take advantage of. All of these pieces of the puzzle, including the climate change part, are likely a part of what's going on. And so birds are adapting to that, right? So they can, there's enough flexibility in the strategies that turkey vultures use that, yeah, some of them you will see migrating past 
West Hawk Mountain, you know, in October and into November. And those birds will be going into the southeast and accumulated Florida and, and along the, the Gulf Coast and places like that and then come back in the spring. But others increasingly in the Northeast are now spending time on the Palisades all winter long, you know, and, uh, and in parts of uh, northern New England and, and in the Great Lakes, where in the past, uh, even as as um, as sort of recently as, you know, 15, 20, 25 years ago, that was a real rarity to see turkey vulture in the winter in a lot of these in a lot of these places. And that's not changed very dramatically. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Friends, we're talking with uh, Dr. Andrew Farnsworth from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology here as we're talking about this exciting time. As you just said, we're about uh, about less than two weeks away from this first real push of huge migration from Central and South America up into the United States. And there's a way to follow this, and it's called BirdCast. You can go to birdcast.info, and this is... Uh, a, basically a radar that is going to show you the amount of migration and, and information about that. Andrew, talk a little bit about this. This has been a project that gets better and better every year. <laughs> I'm glad to hear you say that. We, we like to think uh, that it gets better and better every year, too. Uh, BirdCast has, has been a really amazing uh, collaborative initiative. Um, there are a lot of partners involved, and it's really happened over the past 20 years. The original concept um, at the, in the late 90s was this notion of being able to take radar, uh, weather surveillance radar, in particular, NEXRAD, uh, WSR-88D, as it's called, uh, weather surveillance radar 1988D designation, and that network of, there are 143 of them in the contiguous U.S. Um, they, those radars, they're incredible sensors uh, in terms of monitoring the atmosphere. Uh, meteorological and biological information uh, is detected by these things, you know, so uh, meteorologists will tell you, of course, that they want to remove the contamination of birds, you know, pathologists and biologists, of course, will tell you, well, in fact, these are even better, you know, sensors for biodiversity than they are for weather. So we want to remove the weather part. Right, and of exactly. course, the happy, the happy medium is that we need both of them to understand the dynamics and it, of, of the, you know, migration systems. And it's so <laughs> regardless. Well, the, I'll tell you what, if you're a savvy meteorologist, you sometimes use the bugs or the birds or whatever it's picking up in terms of wind flow and stuff like that. I mean, there's, right. there is actually some meteorological use to that on a, on a dry day when you don't have anything falling from the sky. That's right. Uh, so, you know, some people exactly. aren't happy with anything. So yeah, I like our <laughs> no, that's medium, right. Andrew. So that's, <laughs> we like the happy medium. Yeah. So um, the birdcast has been all about this, uh, this collaborative effort broadly between ornithologists and computer scientists. And, and that evolved because um, the, from a computer science perspective, there was tremendous interest when the first BirdCast project was, was funded by National Science Foundation, which that part happened about uh, 14 years ago or so, something like that. There was tremendous interest in the computer science community of thinking about messy data and making predictions for messy data and trying to find collaborations where computer scientists could employ their knowledge to actually, you know, sort of advance a, a domain like biology, for example, where they're all 
all sorts of messy data sets that one might want to, to predict and understand. Bird migration is a perfect example of one, and that was sort of the genesis of, of BirdCast that now has evolved to the point where we use machine learning to extract the meteorological signal from the uh, radar data, leaving the biological signal, which during spring and fall migration, of course, is dominated by birds, and then quantify that, characterize when birds are on the move, where they're on the move, then relate that kind of information back to weather data to build models of migration forecasts, to do live um, uh, maps of where birds are, you know, 15 or 20 minutes after the radar data uh, come uh, are collected by the radar. So really close to real time. And, and then also um, using this new tool that we have this year, uh, Migration Dashboard, to look kind of at the county level and think about, well, let's, let's put a little bit more detail out there beyond just the forecast maps that we can make that look really nice for the continental US and the observed maps for the continental US. Let's look at a county kind of level and see how many birds are on the move, what altitude they are, what direction and speed they're moving, wow. how that relates to historical patterns, and, and then related also to eBird data, to community science data, to show people, well, here are the birds that are contributing to these radar signals at night when most of the migration happens. Now. Are you also using, because another program that I uh, take part in is the, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the bird watch program, the feeder watch program. Mm -hmm. Do you take that data in too, where you're looking at the rate, the, the bird cast radar data and that information. And then are you kind of checking by seeing how people are reporting at their feeders, what's going on? Is that something like a check and balance situation that you can do? That's a good question. So we don't do it so much with the feeder data because usually the bird feeding stations and, and the feeder watch data, they tend to highlight the species that are more resident or more sedentary. Obviously not and all of these birds move um, and they will, they can, you know, birds have wings and they fly. So it's not like it's uh, always going to be resident birds, but if that project in particular is very much uh, dominated by those kinds of patterns that aren't necessarily driven by these more dynamic species movers that are uh, coming across, you know, really significant differences, uh, distances, excuse me, um, and, and moving across the so the, the kind of data that we, we do use observational data, it's just a different flavor than the feeder watch data per se. And it's the eBird data that I mentioned, where it's a little bit of a broader kind of a community science uh, project where birders can submit information from wherever they are on the planet about what birds they see, how many, how much effort they put in, um, comments, photos, audio, etc. Um, and we do look at that information and try to understand what the radar is telling us, which of course doesn't tell us what the species are because it's just a pulse of microwave energy that comes that that sends out and obviously comes back and fine tuning that information. We, we don't have the capability. Maybe that exists in the in the very rawest form of the data. We don't have it. So we look at that as bird biomass without really a specific species name on it per se. But then when we relate it to the observational data, when people are out during the day observing, oh, what has arrived in my backyard, you know, uh, after migrating last night and what's not there the next day, those kinds of relationships between the observational data and what the radar are telling us those are really important and we do take advantage of those definitely we're gonna probably come back at some point and i'd like to go into i you know the ebird thing is something i haven't 
thought about or getting into, but that sounds like fun. I oh, it's great. Feeder watch, and uh, you know, I've been enjoying and looking at some stuff. You know, one thing, just real quick, uh, and then I want to just ask you a couple of other questions, more general topics here. Sure. I did notice as I look at the Birdcast that there was kind of a little pulse a few days ago. Yes, uh, uh, and that's from like the southeast up along the Appalachians. Yep. Is that is that the beginning of the pulse of some of those bigger migratory birds that we were just talking about? It's the very earliest, um, sort of the, the first hint of the diversity of migration to come and the numbers to come. So, okay. yeah, you think about what's happened uh, in the southeastern U.S. in particular over the last couple of days. Um, there is obviously a very significant frontal boundary that is moving across the country right at the moment. And in wow, front of yes. that, to the east, right, it's real active and yes. a lot of weather happening. It's right. real serious a big stuff, right? southeast flow or southwest flow ahead of that. A lot of, a lot yeah. of good wind to get a tailwind to start making that trip north. So that's, that's exactly right. Sense that, right? To, oh, we go. <laughs> it's like, you know, if yeah. we go now, we can catch the express. Yeah. Uh, Unfortunately, they're going to run into some really strong west northwest. I mean, the Great Lakes. I mean, amazing. I know it's snow even, and and, and yeah. so this is this, this exactly this this kind of movement. Um, you know, sort of embodies the challenges, in particular for these early migrants, right? And also for migrants dealing with climate change, right? So, in terms of thinking, like, well, more extreme storms every every spring, or well, various times through the year, of course, but more extreme storms, including these late snow and super intense mid-latitude cyclones, you know, that are, mm-hmm. are producing, you know, freezing temperatures and a lot of snow in places where some of these arriving migrants have the, um, to anthropomorphize a little bit, the expectation, if you will, of uh, food resources like insects and, and blossoming, right? And, 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 oh, right. And yeah. So they kind of think, oh, if it's getting warm and humid and, <laughs> oh, wow, I'm going to get into a place where uh, the, the, the midges are going to start hatching and we're all, you know, about bugs and stuff. That's, that's amazing to think about. Yeah. Yeah. So these extreme freezes create enormous problems potentially right. for these early migrants. Um, and, uh, and so too, with these kinds of weather systems where you have this strong, you know, return flow, um, and, and, you know, sort of after the high pressure passes and you have these southerly winds in advance of these, these, uh, you know, cold air masses, birds are taking advantage of that in the spring in incredible ways. And they're they're moving, you know, enormous distances. Some birds that come into the U.S. from uh, the Caribbean and from northern South America, they're making a single leap from the continent, uh, the the sort of the last landmass, last land area, say in northern Colombia. They are and sometimes able to make that leap, even a small bird like a great cheek thrush, all the way from there, like into the Ohio River Valley. It's wow. insane. It's absolutely unbelievable. And some of that has to do with really favorable conditions, um, including uh, let's what's that? Uh, the um, the circumglobal teleconnection, like these right. you know, flow from sort of like uh, very low latitudes to high latitudes. Um, there's some pieces of bird migration that are certainly connected to that kind of pattern and birds taking these incredible leaps uh, to go, you know, thousands of kilometers. Other times, maybe they won't go so far, but they still want to try to take advantage of these tailwinds. So, of course, in the spring, in advance of a cold front passing, that's when you get that nice, you know, supportive tailwind action that they'd like to take advantage of. And so that's what you've seen in the southeast in the past couple of days. So that thrush that goes that many miles, how high is it up when it's doing that? And I'll tell you, when 
you know when you can do that, uh, there's a type of cloud that is formed. It's called a Rosby wave cloud. Of course. It's the ones that look like, uh, yes. like a Ruffles potato chip. Yes. Because that's when we're having tremendous amounts of transport of different uh, air at the top and the bottom, and it's creating that kind of ripple effect in the middle. That's right. And the Rossby waves are, it's a wonderful way to think about broadly speaking um, from a, it's a longer time scale than just say birds migrating on a particular night. Obviously it captures that to some extent, but it captures sort of the dynamics over time of when these pulses occur and what influences them from year to year. And then obviously over longer periods of time, these kind of regularized climatological patterns, that's one of the things that drives the evolution of bird migration, of course, and how it happens. So um, the altitude you ask about in terms of some of these thrushes, it's incredible. So they are, in some cases, moving around tremendously in the air column, and it could be on the order of uh, 1,000, 2,000 meters in the course of a night, sort of looking for not necessarily the most optimal conditions, but kind of um, like even... um, even the the least unfavorable or the, you know, the sort of the most marginal conditions, like things that are kind of suboptimal, that are good, that are calm winds, even not necessarily the strongest tailwinds, but certainly supportive tailwinds help. Birds are moving around to the best kind of thing that they can find without expending the most energy that they can. So yeah, they they may find, you know, um, and may migrate at, at two or 3,000 uh, meters above the ground in some cases when it comes to larger body birds. Some thrushes may get up that high occasionally, but usually it's a little bit lower, like in the 500 to 1500 meter range. But there's a lot of information there, a lot of, you know, a a lot of change that birds are trying to exploit and a lot of variation. And then a huge amount of biomass that's happening, basically uh, moving in that lowest 3000 meters above the ground, in particular in the eastern U.S. Think about the think about a bird as like a like a pilot, you know, when you're in a plane and there's times when it's really choppy and the pilot will say, I'm going to try to move to a different altitude to get out of this. The same thing the birds trying to do is find the right altitude that's giving them the favorable wind direction. And uh, so, yeah, that's, that's cool. And conditions too. Yep. Absolutely right. Very, very good analogy. And it's one of the, presumably one of the reasons that birds actually migrate at night is in theory, the turbulence is a little bit more regularized, or at least it's less than it is during the day, right? In theory. Yeah. Um, So that there are opportunities to take advantage of the regularized turbulence or to just avoid the crazy turbulence that happens obviously with thermals during the day. Dr. Andrew Farnsworth from the Cornell lab of ornithology. Um, you know, it's that time of year again when, uh, we're, you know, we're talking about bird migration, but, you know, people are kind of getting out from under winter. I know, you know, some people feed birds mainly in the winter because they feel bad for the birds, <laughs> you know, especially uh, in where places that are snowy and icy. Other people feed them all year round. I'm that person, too. Um A couple of things. First of all, I was going to tell you with this, uh, I have had a a cluster of bluebirds that have stayed with me all winter. Nice. Help them with, uh, you know, feeding them some mealy worms. They like that. And, uh, uh, but it was fun, uh, to see them in there. And now the last couple of weeks have gotten so beautiful. Um, you know, I've also had a cardinals or seem to the number of cardinals I have this year has exploded around me. To the point where they're starting to peck at the windows because they think they're <laughs> seeing so many other cardinals close. I had I was sitting in the car 
after I pulled in the driveway last evening and was, you know, doing that thing we all do is we look at our phone and answer texts for five minutes before we go inside. Right. And <laughs> right. I, I hear this tap, tap, tap. I'm looking over and it's a cardinal. And I'm like, dude, I'm just in here chilling, you know, relax. <laughs> um, so uh, what, you know, am I good to keep same level of feeding during this the the summer or spring into summer as i was doing in the winter should i change what is there any guidelines to that or just keep doing what you're doing don't think about the seasonality of feeding versus uh other things that we think about seasonality in terms of doing things differently Mm -hmm. that's a good question so generally speaking uh, you know continuing to feed all year round um i think it's a it's a great idea the the one change you might make is you might notice obviously with um with warming temperatures and increasing abundance of insects and other sorts of food that birds may may target is that the numbers may decline and that the amount of food that you have in the feeders sits around longer so you just want to be sensitive about that because obviously moldy food and, and and places where um where that food can can sort of produce, um, you know, non-sterile conditions and, and you end up with some sort of bacterial growth or fungal growth or that kind of thing. You don't want to have that. So as long as the, you know, feeding all year round, absolutely fine, you know, and birds will certainly take advantage of that, no question. Um, but just monitoring that in terms of how much, uh, how much birds are eating and how much is left and just sitting there, that's an important component. And then also realizing that because there are are um, all of these other uh, potential resources that, yeah, you may lose some birds to, you know, to, to other things, but you may keep a lot for the entire cycle, for the entire, you know, the spring, summer, fall, you may see those birds that you've been feeding continuing to return to the feeders. And if it so happens that you, for some reason, stop feeding, the birds aren't going to die. They're, they're very adept at finding food wherever they can find food. They are very adaptable when it comes to that point. Absolutely. But, so keeping all those things in mind, definitely keep feeding all year, but just be mindful about the amount and that you may have, right. you know, uh, you may have more seeds sitting around. So you just want to be careful about that. Not to I try. Them. I also try to go more holeless, uh, yeah. go cleaner in the, yeah. in the spring and the summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also be careful because obviously things that drop in the places uh, this time of year, they can germinate before, you know, it. you can have uh, a lot of weeds or grasses yeah. under Massive sunflower. <laughs> yeah. Well, right. And, uh, and then I've been good at really working on trying to find the species that grow and don't have issues. Dahlias don't have issues. Uh, mm-hmm. Vinca yep. could go on. Uh, we were talking about this with our uh, our gardening guy the other day. Yep. Uh, one other quick update: uh, avian flu, bird flu. Where uh, you know I'm starting to see some articles. People getting yeah. concerned about numbers. Yeah. Maybe what uh, what uh, your thoughts on that are as we go here into the late spring and summer. Yeah, so obviously uh, it's become a uh, quite a serious concern in that it's expanding uh, rapidly in many areas of the eastern U.S. It's probably more widespread than we know. And uh, the transmission that we've, I think, seen so far, and, and the APHIS, the USDA website, has uh, the, a lot of information about that if you, if you visit it, about where the surveillance is finding wild birds in particular. It's dominated by waterfowl that are, that are um, you know, having, uh, having these infections. And that presumably is the source of transmission that obviously uh, between the movements of waterfowl in February, March, and April, um, that the progression of uh, the, the transmission events farther and farther north 
north and, and west as these birds are moving, and then having them encounter uh, places where that transmission can then carry over into poultry, right, and into poultry right. farms. We've seen that time and time again, and it's definitely increasing now, and it probably is going to increase over the course of the year. And then, of course, in the fall, we're going to see another big pulse of it. Um, now, now, hopefully, the monitoring is good and the surveillance is good and, and the understanding of sort of what's going on starts to be uh, uh, a little more robust than, than it's been. Obviously, it's been an increasing uh, and, and uh, important uh, PR campaign to understand that it's happening and to have poultry engaged in biosecurity and biosurveillance at their facilities. Um, you know, thankfully, there has not been any bird to human transmission in the U.S., and let's hope it stays that way, you know, but obviously it can still be an enormous problem, like a billion or multi-billion dollar problem for the poultry industry if this continues and expands. So it's right. something that it's very difficult to potentially control it. Obviously, there are all sorts of unpalatable kinds of things that, that spread from it beyond just the tra potential transmission to humans, which thankfully hasn't happened in North America. Um, but it's just it, it's just something to be mindful of and, and to really watch. Definitely. It seems to me, too, Andrew, that it with us, you know, being so covid focused that I think that's going to continue to create. Focus more on regular flu and regular influenza and this situation. So hopefully, yeah, uh, maybe maybe in some ways a little bit too focused on it with people. I, I don't know, but you can't, I mean, this is, you're right. This is something you can't be careful enough with. And yeah, um, yeah. it's, it's and definitely something to keep monitoring, keep yourself informed, Definitely, uh, like just checking around. And I think, uh, you know, especially too, with your local health organizations as well, state and local levels, mostly as well. Yes. And make sure, you know, if you if you are for whatever reason, um, if you find dead birds uh, or or see them, you know, don't handle them um, if you can if you can avoid it. And if you must, of course, wear a mask and gloves. Better to talk to a professional, a wildlife rehabber or your state wildlife office, animal control, that kind of thing, um, because you just don't want to. This is exactly the situation, presumably, where, you know, uh, we had the initial issue with COVID and that sort of transmission of a zoonotic disease, right? Something that affects animals other than humans that transmits one way or another into the human population. We don't want to have that happen here, you know, if we can avoid it. So just being careful if you ever, if you see dead birds anywhere, or anything like that. Or if you happen to handle poultry, if you have chickens in your backyard, just be very mindful about being careful with your protective gear. You should have it on and use it. Dr. Andrew Farnsworth from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Uh, thanks so much. Looking forward to watching BirdCast at birdcast.info. Yeah. Uh, next time we have you on, I want to get uh, information about eBird and we'll talk about that and, and catch up to date on the latest news. Uh, I, I'm like to think that uh, you're part now of the everything under the sun family and we're going to welcome you back uh, a few more times soon okay my friend I, I appreciate that thank you for the for the opportunity and you know for these great questions and discussion i look forward to the next time well i think a lot of uh, my meteorological friends are going to just kind of geek out on those <laughs> uh, connections those avian connections between the weather and migration and how we see and how we think about that. It's really good stuff. Thanks, Andy. Yeah, well, make sure they visit the website, you know, uh, and there's a lot of information there and they can always reach out to us, you know, to, to ask questions and, uh, and provide information. There's a lot happening and this is the busy time. So real exciting stuff.
Really, really fascinating stuff from uh, Andrew, and uh, we hope that uh, you can take advantage of looking at their website, especially that BirdCast uh, display is is amazing, and you're seeing so much of it going on here in the last couple of days already, and then, as Andrew said, it's only going to get more colorful and more informative, and again, you can go to that link at birdcast.info, and we've got links to Andrew's uh, website and his Twitter account and everything else that you need to know on our show notes here on our Everything Under the on podcast. Friends, uh, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to go into our weather for the upcoming weekend and week beyond segment with our friend Dan Pitanowski from AccuWeather. This is Everything Under the Sun from AccuWeather.com. Plan your day with confidence and find out what the weather means for you. Join AccuWeather meteorologist Bernie Reno Monday through Friday for Weather Insider. Available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Welcome back to Everything Under the Sun from AccuWeather.com. I'm your host, meteorologist Dean DeVore, as we continue on here in spring. An amazing conversation with Dr. Andrew Farnsworth about weather and bird migration. And I just wanted to bring in one of my uh, favorite uh, compatriots here at AccuWeather, who's also a fellow bird feeder himself. He's not a bird feeder. He feeds the birds. <laughs> His name is Dan Pitanowski. And Dan senior meteorologist for us, and now our chief morning meteorologist and forecaster here at AccuWeather. And Dan and I have been comparing bird feeding and washing notes for several years here as we've worked together. Uh, Dan, uh, some really interesting stuff. Now, I know you haven't heard the whole interview, and uh, I was kind of previewing it from it, but it's amazing here as we get ready for this uh, influx of uh, uh, amazing amounts of migration here over the next couple of weeks. We're already seeing some of that. If you look at the uh, the, the radar that the folks at Cornell uh, provide, and, and it's kind of crazy because it really goes along in what we've been seeing here this week, which is a lot of wind coming off uh, from the southwest to northeast ahead of a front. Uh, some real warm temperatures finally into the northeast as we got into uh, the end of the week. But unfortunately, it looks like a, a kibosh being put on all of that here as we go into the weekend with another extremely chilly air mass, Dan, that's going to be coming in to the Great Lakes and northeast. I mean, I, folks are going to wonder if it really is April and Easter because it's going to feel a lot colder than it should. And there's some white stuff in the forecast, not Easter eggs, but maybe hunting some snowflakes on Easter Sunday morning in some parts of the Great Lakes in the northeast. Kind of crazy stuff we got going on here in the next couple of days. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, <laughs> April, always a back and forth month. And uh, what we're seeing over the next uh a few days, certainly an example of that. Uh, well into the 80s and a lot of the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic yesterday, what was it, 88 at Newark? And uh, and now we're talking about highs back in, into the 40s. It'll be chilly Sunday morning in a lot of places for uh, sunrise services. So uh, yeah, back and forth uh, we go. And uh, uh, unfortunately, if you like the warm weather, it looks like the cold stuff's going to be winning out here at least maybe into what, the first half of next week before maybe finally... Uh, uh, it things uh, moderate a little bit. Yeah, I think this is uh, that's kind of the the depressing part. I mean, yeah, you're right. We expect some pushes of cold air in April and even into May, early May. We were talking about that in the office. Um, Mother's Day weekend, uh, parts of the Great Lakes in the Northeast not immune to some snow showers or a little bit of light snow, and that may be the situation that we see over the next few weeks into then, where we still see some cold incursions. But this one, it's just long lasting. You're right. Like place like. Uh, 
uh, I looked at Chicago, where I'm on a WBBM in the mornings. I mean, low 50s today, 40s, pretty much to near 50 the rest of the Easter weekend and into the first couple of days of next week. I mean, you could expect that normally one or two days in a row this time of year, but certainly not four or five. And that's kind of what makes this kind of depressing for those of us who want the warm and sunny winds of April and May, right? Yeah. And and of course, what we had earlier this week uh, makes it all the worse because mm-hmm. uh, well, it was 72 in Chicago a few right. days ago. So so again, you've had this nice warm up. You've had a nice taste of spring. You had a lot of areas with temperatures above normal. And now we're swinging it back the other way. And you're right. It's a prolonged four or five day stretch of it. So it, that makes it a, a tougher to swallow when you've had that 70 and 80 degree days. And now you're uh, getting back into the 40s and 50s. Now, the cold air had been uh, pushed back to the West. In fact, uh, some storminess out there. Kind of give me your take on the Western states here as we go into this upcoming weekend and the week beyond. Some things to look for there, some highlights out West. Yeah, certainly interesting weather across uh, parts of the West over the last few days. Uh, Portland picking up accumulating snow in, in April. That's uh, I think that might be the first time on record uh, officially at the airport. So uh, v- very uh, unusual weather across parts of the Pacific Northwest. And it looks like uh, over the next few days, uh, Pacific Northwest stays active, probably low snow levels again tomorrow around Portland and Seattle, very cold air mass in place and uh, getting so much needed rain in northern and central California, it looks like tomorrow, uh, and then some mountain snow for the Sierra. So that's, of course, good news. Unfortunately, uh, for SoCal, uh, it looks like everything is going to the north. So Los Angeles, San Diego, the LA basin, uh, unfortunately going to be missing out on the rain. And of course, we're running out of time. If we're not getting any kind of rain in LA now, we're pretty much at the end uh, of the opportunity of that as we head out of the wet season and into the dry season. Yeah, it is awfully scary. I agree, Dan, where we're looking at this scenario and, uh, and it just looks like it could ignite as like a tinderbox here at times over the next couple of months. You know, that energy that we're seeing out west is going to take a turn into the south here as we get Friday night into Sunday. And I want to jump forward because uh, I think along the eastern seaboard, there is the potential for a nor'easter to bring some really, well, awful chilly rain and wind along the eastern seaboard itself. And then as you bring some of that colder air to bear from the north, there could be some mix in or even some just plain snowflakes in some of the interior parts of uh, the northeast of New England. But, you know, it's early in the scenario here. We're we're dropping this podcast, obviously, on Friday uh, early in the modeling run on this. But one of the concerns I always have in these scenarios is if we have an area of low pressure like this along the eastern seaboard, how much are the models not telling us how much it's going to deepen as it goes along in this uh, the life of it? So I think for folks along anywhere from Jersey Shore communities up to uh, the, the, the tri-state area of New York along the eastern seaboard, then up into the New England areas, you got to be taking a look at this for later Monday into Tuesday and maybe making some plans for at least a pretty healthy dose of wind and rain, especially along the coast. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And that energy in the northern branch of the jet stream is just coming on to the West Coast now. Uh, that's what we were talking about, bringing some rain to the Pacific Northwest uh, tonight into tomorrow. And that's going to come quickly eastward into the Great Lakes on Monday. And you're right. Meanwhile, 
while another area of low pressure developing in the southeast. And that's what we call phasing of the jet streams when the northern and southern branch come together. And eventually the main storm center takes place off the mid-Atlantic coast and comes northward. How quickly that happens, where exactly that happens, you're right, Dean, there's difference in the modeling about uh, the intensity of the phasing and exactly where it comes together. So we're confident there's going to be a storm uh, to deal with Monday into Tuesday, but exactly how intense it is, how strong it is, uh, that remains to be seen. But you're right, uh, I-95, certainly uh, I-95 cities from D.C. all the way up to Boston certainly could be dealing with some wind and rain. And it is going to be cold enough in the interior that uh, certainly in the mountains and maybe even in some valley locations from uh, PA northeastward into New England and eastern Canada, uh, we could be talking about uh, late season snowfall. So uh, <laughs> eight, you know, 70s and 80s a couple days ago, and now we're, we're talking about the opportunity for snow uh, after Easter, no less. Danny, you're depressing me and the folks <laughs> listening here on Everything Under the Sun. Let's turn this back to something a little more uh, fun. I know that you and I share the love of uh, feeding and watching birds. Uh, you know, I've been seeing some things. Uh, we were talking about this with Andrew. It seems like there are more birds that are spending the winter here now because of our maybe less harsh winters over the last couple of decades. I've had some bluebirds at my feet are all winter long. Um, anything interesting that you've noticed here over the last year or so feeding birds and being around, especially with all of us spending a little more time at home over the last couple of years with the pandemic working from home? I think I'm a little bit more sensitive to what's going on, but uh, always good. And this this bird migration stuff with bird cast, the radar that the Cornell Lab of Ornithology does is just amazing to see how they kind of tie together the weather and the birds. It makes it for a geeky, uh, fun thing for me who likes both the weather and the birds. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting. I just filled up the bird feeder the other day. Obviously, they go through the food very quickly this time of year. They're yeah. uh, very busy uh, getting ready to uh, uh, build build their nests. And uh, for I'm already seeing some robin yep. eggs in some places yep. already. Yeah, that's exactly right. And uh, maybe next week or maybe after this cold shot uh, early next week, I'll take a chance and put up the uh, the Oriole the hummingbird, and the hummingbird yeah. feeders. Uh, we, we were looking at some uh, maps the other day in the office. There's already been some sightings in, in uh, southeastern PA in the lower Susquehanna Valley. So getting pretty close to us. So I may take a shot at it this weekend and put the hummingbird feeder up and uh, see if I get an early one. Just take it down at night because Danny and I both live in a place where we've been dealing with some <laughs> yeah. bears overnight yeah. roaming yeah. about. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I've had that the last couple of years. They've yeah, hit them. <laughs> for sure. Dan Pinowski, thanks for joining us with a look at the weather for the upcoming weekend and week beyond here on Everything Under the Sun from AccuWeather.com. Friends, that'll do it for Episode 7 of our spring series. Many thanks to our guests, including Dr. Andrew Farnsworth from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology and Dan Pidnowski. Thanks to our hundreds of team members who work hard every hour of every day, weatherproofing your life with the latest information on AccuWeather.com, our AccuWeather apps and our network and our great media partners across the nation. We'll be back next week with everything under the sun, giving you information and stories where the weather meets your life. And certainly, if you've got suggestions or comments or questions, give us a shout on our email, podcast at AccuWeather.com. Pretty simple. Podcast at AccuWeather.com. You can send us your questions, comments, or suggestions for future topics. For our executive producers, Ken Prell and Andrew Robb, I'm your host, Dean DeVore. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on our next episode of Everything Under the Sun from AccuWeather.com. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. 
Be sure to subscribe to, rate, and review Everything Under the Sun on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And of course, if you have an idea for a future podcast, just email us at accuweather.podcast at accuweather.com. <laughs>